Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're talking. About talking. We're talking about talking. We're finally stepping into the last of the four fields of anthropology, linguistics. We've talked before about ways in which culture affects language and language affects culture. But today, let's focus on language itself. So, Anna... Uh, what's a language? That's cool. We're starting with the small questions. Yeah. Um, oh, they only get bigger <laughs> from here. <laughs> Can't wait. So first of all, we have to distinguish between speech and language. Speech is simply verbal communication, making noises that get some sort of meaning across. So if we're going by that definition, many non-human animals might be said to have speech. Certainly non-human primates do, for example. Oh, my my non-human animal. Speaks a lot, as listeners she does. will know. Yours too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We both have very talky pets. So speech itself has three parts. Articulation, how the actual sounds are made with whatever sort of mouth arrangement you have going on, tongue and lips. The voice, how you actually make a noise with your vocal tract. And then fluency, which is the speed and rhythm of speech. Language, on the other hand, is made up of and based within a series of socially shared rules. So what do words mean? If I put together a series of sounds, will that sequence of sounds always mean the same thing? How do I make new words for things that I want to point out that haven't come up before? How do I string words together into a phrase that also has meaning? As you might imagine, there's been a long-standing debate about whether other animals besides humans might be said to have language. And beyond that, when language first evolved as a human trait. And I actually did quite a bit of research on this as part of a series on Neanderthals that I wrote for the online anthropology journal Sapiens. Oh, you mean that series? It was one of their most read <laughs> items of 2019 <laughs> yeah that wasn't on the script yeah no i am Amber's familiar being nice and saying that no, yeah and i'll um, include the 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 big one like the full head the whole project, yeah. one yeah um, <laughs> um i'll include that in the show notes for folks yeah to contribute to it continuing to be one of the most read <laughs> items that they have on the online anthropology hey, journal series. Sure, let's get it. Let's get it to 2020 as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did write about Neanderthal language question mark Neanderthal speech, and actually Amber, I have you to thank for the opening to this piece since you're the one who got me reading the book that I reference in the first place. So I'm gonna oh. read a few excerpted paragraphs from. Um, this Neanderthal piece on voice that I wrote. Ahem. The first two pages of Claire Cameron's novel, The Last Neanderthal, contain a glossary, a handful of words used by the family of Neanderthals at the center of the story. This imaginary language helps to paint a rich picture of Neanderthal life within the fictional narrative, but it makes a massive assumption about a question still much debated by researchers. Did Neanderthals speak? There's no shortage of opinions on the origin and evolution of language. Some researchers argue that only Homo sapiens is capable of full-fledged spoken language with all of its grammatical complexity and nuance. Others assert that language is found in multiple animal species. Speculation on this topic has been contentious for centuries. In 1866, in fact, the French Academy of Sciences banned any further publications on the evolution of language as the subject had become so fraught. They were just like, ah, no. (laughs) 
Jamais. Pas encore. Jamais. <rire> Jamais encore. <rire> oh, what a time. Uh, so, <laughs> at the very least, in order for spoken language to be a possibility, a species has to have the right anatomical equipment. Studies of the Neanderthal skeleton can help to shed some light on this question by revealing whether Neanderthals possessed the features necessary for speech and what that speech might have sounded like. So, let's play anatomist for a minute and examine how speech works in our modern human bodies. Listeners, you can do this at home. When we open our mouths to make a sound, we force air out of our lungs and through the larynx, which includes a series of taut, folded ligaments and muscles in the throat that make up your vocal cords. As the air passes those muscles and ligaments, they open and close rapidly, creating a particular frequency. The vocal cords actually aren't much like cords at all. Instead, picture the vibrating mouth of a whoopee cushion when someone sits on it, or, you know, a balloon when you let the air out. Tiny movements of the muscles in the larynx fine-tune the frequency produced by the vibrating vocal cords, producing an audible vocalization, like I'm doing right now. Tensing the folds of the vocal cords produces a higher pitch. Relaxing them produces a lower pitch. Researchers assume that early hominids had vocal cords too, since apes also have them. But apes also have something else. The opening to their vocal tract leads down into a large system of air sacs. Researchers are unsure of the purpose of these ballooning organs. They may help to make calls louder, or they may be a mechanism for supporting massive ape neck muscles. Whatever the case, they also mean that apes cannot produce clear, single-frequency tones, which is a key quality of complex speech as we know it. So no one has found any remains of Neanderthal vocal cords or the muscles in their throat. That soft tissue has all disappeared with time. But there is one bone associated with the vocal tract, the hyoid. The hyoid is a delicate U-shaped bone that sits at the front of the throat just underneath the jawbone. It's the only bone in the body that is not connected to any other bone. It's an anchor point instead for ligaments and muscles in the throat that are key for speaking and for swallowing. If you're a fan of CSI in any of its iterations and any other procedural crime dramas, you may already be familiar with the hyoid. A perennial plot point in these shows often centers on the breakage of the hyoid as evidence that a victim was strangled. The hyoid's small size and fragility mean that it is rarely found intact in fossil hominids. Only one known complete hyoid bone exists from a Neanderthal. It was found at Kibara Cave in what is now Israel. And so for this, this research on Neanderthal voice and speech, I talked to Sandra Martelli, who is a researcher in biology and anatomy at the University College London, and she's been working with computer models to try to reconstruct the most likely configuration of the Neanderthal vocal tract. So while we have the hyoid bone from Neanderthals, we don't have those muscles and ligaments. So we have the bone, but we don't know exactly where it's at, which could really make a difference uh, as to how those vocalizations would have sounded. Martelli and colleagues took CT scans of modern human heads, including the hyoid, and mapped those onto CT scans of Neanderthal skulls to see where the Neanderthal hyoid, as represented by the one from Kibara, likely sat. So they basically took human CT scans and skewed them until they matched a Neanderthal head and throat. Martelli and her colleagues found that the most likely position for the Neanderthal hyoid was slightly forward from where the modern human hyoid bone sits, with no room for an ape-like air sac, so they probably didn't have that feature. So, Neanderthals had the anatomical properties to create the sounds that could form the basis of speech and, indeed, language, though any words they produced would have sounded a bit unfamiliar to modern human ears. So the difference in where their hyoid sits actually would have affected the way that vowel sounds came out of their mouths. Um, so if you want to hear a simulation of a few Neanderthal vowel sounds, I think it's an E, an A, and an U. Um, check out our show notes, and we'll link to the full article at sapiens.org. In fact, you could go do that right now, because we're going to go have an ad break. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. 
We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, everyone. You're mind blown yet? No? Wow. Well, <laughs> clearly you're... <laughs> You are clearly less easily impressed than I am because this is already too much for me and I've not even gotten to the Orheima yet. So uh, can I, oh can I uh, soften that landing? Uh, <laughs> but yes, yes. Well, I feel like I want to, I want to bring up something from last week from last episode. Um, we were talking about potatoes and the, the four corners potato. And I sort of wondered out loud where the word, word spud came from. Yeah. And then we sort of, I, we sort of agreed that I would Google it and then didn't get farther than that. Well, I Googled it and Congrats. <laughs> it is an English, it's an English word. It's ang- Anglo in, oh. in derivation. And, um, in the 17th century, a, a spud was a short or dull knife. And the word for the, the nickname spud for potato came from that, right? So like a little dull knife is just about as useful as a knife as a potato. Oh. That's the idea. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. So like you might as well try to cut that with a potato. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. No knife. Knife. <laughs> knife, bro. Oh, knife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool. All right. All right. Let's well, let's make it no, complicated. This is this is cool cuz you know, thank you for the etymology. That is a wonderful yeah, exactly. segue. I thought it fit into linguistics. Well, Dear listeners, linguistics is a complex, sprawling discipline that frankly terrifies me. (laughs) That you didn't realize this is what you were getting in the script today. (laughs) Um, Something that didn't help was when was when uh, while I was doing research for this episode, I found a very handy introduction written by Professor Marcus Croft, which I'll share in the show notes. Uh, But in that introduction, the first paragraph contained the phrase, do not panic. That's not helpful. So um, I (laughs) promptly proceeded to panic. Uh, But once Mm -hmm. I was done panicking and then I flipped ahead and panicked even more at all the symbols in the later sections, um, I regained my composure and returned to the introduction. So linguistics. Don't panic. Don't don't you dare panic. Hitchhiker's Guide to Linguistics. Linguistics is the study of language, which is to say it is the study of signs and what they signify. Signs and the interpretation thereof is known as semiotics. Uh, There are four levels of sign in linguistics, those being phonology, morphology, syntax, and semantics. Semantics deals strictly with the meaning of signs, so the signified. Um, phonology, morphology, and syntax all deal with how the signs are composed sound-wise. Would you say that semantics is just visual? Or no, no. I guess semantics would be something you hear as well. No, semantics is, no. Semantics is is like the abstract, like what it all comes together to mean. Okay. So it's, me- it's, is, oh boy. it's meaning, it's meaning making. <laughs> okay. Um, and so phonology. Wowzers. Yeah. Okay, so this is already hard. I know. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> so I'm going to read from Cracked now, <clears throat> please. Um, and he says, with some exceptions, for example, tone and intonation, every utterance can be seen as a sequence of sounds. For example, dog consists of three letters and three sounds, D O G. 
In order not to confuse sounds and sound sequences with letters, we denote the sounds by enclosing them in square brackets. So the sounds that make up dog are d, a, and g in that order. What is important to note here is that sounds by themselves in general have no meaning. The decomposition, well. yeah, the decomposition into sounds has no counterpart in the semantics. Mm. So, d, right. a, g. In no way. It's no, like, oh, right. dog. Um, just as every signifier can be decomposed into sounds, it can also be decomposed into words. In written language, we can spot the words by looking for minimal parts of text enclosed by blanks or punctuation marks. In spoken language, the definition of word becomes very tricky. The part of linguistics that deals with how words are put to- together into sentences is called syntax. Okay. So... In this sense, like syntax and semantics might make more sense, because if you think about like when you're looking at the mechanics of writing, like is it an issue Mm -hmm. of sentence syntax or is it an issue of like sentence semantics? Like, is it a grammatically sound sentence? It just doesn't make any sense in case that (laughs) in which case that's semantics or is it something that sort of makes sense, but it doesn't work in grammar? That's an issue of syntax. Right. Okay. Um, Okay. On the other hand, words are not the smallest meaningful units of language. For example, dogs is the plural of dog and is formed by a regular process. And if we only know the meaning of dog, we also know the meaning of dogs. So the sound is a right, we know makes that it that plural. Means more than yeah. one dog. Yeah. Um, okay. The minimal parts of speech that bear meaning are called morphemes. <laughs> yes, red or blue pill. Um, yep. <laughs> Often it is tacitly assumed that a morpheme is part of a word. Bigger chunks are called idioms. Idioms are kick the bucket, keep tabs on someone, and so on. Huh. Uh, The reason for this division is that while idioms are intransparent as far as their meaning is concerned, and he says very helpfully, if you die, you do not literally kick a bucket. Um, He doesn't know. (laughs) Syntactically, they often behave as if they are made of words. For example, they inflect. John kicked the bucket. So a word such as dogs has four manifestations. Its meaning, its sound structure, its morphological structure, and its syntactic structure. The levels of manifestation are also called strata. Some use the term level of representation. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. I cannot guarantee an answer. That's fine. Can dog or dogs have syntactic structure without accompanying words? Like, does dog have any syntax in the absence of anything putting dog in context? Like, if I just say dog, does that have syntax? Um, I don't know, but I think it could. Because We need a linguist. Well, yeah. 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 Well, don't worry. Like, we are okay. we're getting... So, okay. This is the backbone going. of linguistic study today. And for the most part, linguistics focuses on how language is acquired, how it's used, and how it's processed in your brain. Um, mm-hmm. However, there is one corner of the field that is of particular interest to us at the dirt that we can sort of wrap our heads around, and that is historical linguistics. So we're gonna oh, get, we're gonna get away from the the narrow the noises that we make because Professor Crox tried his best. I will include it in the show notes, but really, it freaks me out. <laughs> historical linguistics this is why we made it to episode 81 before actually dealing with the fourth field of anthropology yeah it's certainly not because we're we're trying to ignore that field oh, or oh i've been know, sliding well <laughs> i've been no i just I've, I've been avoiding it <laughs> what i mean is we're not trying to um we appreciate those who it's, do linguistics it's not we you linguistics them and admire it's us them. it's it's very much us so historical linguistics tackles the history of languages their relationships with other languages and points at which different languages may share a common ancestor an example is how english german and dutch are all very similar Um, they're all very similar we linguists believe because they all descend from another language which is postulated to to be germanic 
Mm -hmm. Uh, By mapping similarities and tracing points at which they might have deviated from common ancestors, historical linguists have established what are known as language families. Some scholars have gone so far as to propose macro families or super families, which are all very controversial and very fringy and try to imagine what people spoke way, way back in the Paleolithic, if not before. So... Which yeah. is hard to do. And basically, they're trying to figure out what language Brendan Fraser would have spoken if the movie Encino Man were historically accurate. The documentary Encino Man. The documentary Man, yes. Encino Man, yes. That as I grow older, <laughs> I realize may have had more impact on me uh, than I thought at the time. Oh, no. I know. So, um, but, but now I'm going to kick it over to Anna, who's going to walk us through yeah. some language families that um, are established and recognized are yes the language families that are (laughs) syntax (laughs) Um, don't you dare (laughs) so there are many many language families in existence today and according to the 2019 edition of glottolog a database maintained by the max planck institute for the science of human history which is really cool and really free the largest language families are in order of largest to not as largest atlantic congo 1432 languages my goodness right much of the uh, yeah much of the african continent south of the sahel and south of the horn of africa except for the parts of southern africa where khoisan languages are spoken this category includes all bantu languages oh is this why you texted me about the bantu expansion yeah yeah cuz we should yeah because mm-hmm. um that's a lot of a continent sure is like most which, of a like, really big one yeah africa is so big. Turns out it's so very it big. It's so big. Yeah. And well, I do know someone that we can talk to about that. Yes. So, yes. But they're not uh, a linguist, okay. are they? <laughs> nope. Nope. They're a geneticist. Okay. Next Austronesian, 1,275 languages. Taiwan, Malay Peninsula, Madagascar, and Maritime Southeast Asia. And then Amber just went ahead and reiterated 1275 well, like, think about languages. that so taiwan no that's so many super I'm small to think about it the malay ow. peninsula quite small madagascar super not big also very far away from everything maritime southeast asia so like the cumulative land mass and like small. number of people that that is so few people like okay so you've got all of freaking africa with uh, with that only with has 200 only 200 more, more language this is yeah, like yeah. blowing my mind but surely it has to do with how places are populated well, I, I, and who comes exactly. to those places. like it's a bigger it's a much but, bigger picture well, no, it, but it blows my mind also to think about how you have populations that would would deviate and move and be separated over vast distances. And then those languages become dialects and then they become full-fledged languages through some process. Amber, this is definitely don't understand. This is exactly how species form. I know this is so isolation. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's geographic or some, some kind of isolation and time. That's Ah! it. (laughs) Okay. Let's keep going before you explode. It, Indo-European, eh, 588 languages. So, <laughs> like, whatever. That's a big decline. So we've got yeah, the two no, I, that are just like, mm-hmm. uh, okay, great. Uh, and the major subgroups of Indo-European include Germanic, Baltic, Italic, slanty, and Indo-Iranic. Bold, underline, strike through. <laughs> Super text, subtext. Uh, or no, superscript. Eh? Yes. Whatever. Uh, Sino-Tibetan, 494 languages. The major branches of this one are Chinese, Lolo-Burmese, Tibetic, and Karen. Yeah, you can see. Yeah. So Karen or Kyan. Um, so Karen, I like freaked out and I was like, oh my God, Karen. Uh, but they want to talk to the manager. <laughs> but it turns out the uh, manager doesn't listen to them because they're actually a diverse set of minority groups indigenous to Burma and have oh, a long, long okay. history of being subjugated by the Myanmar or Burmese government. Okay. So we're definitely not making fun of those Karens. No. <laughs> nope. Okay. So, yeah, that was a bit of a roller coaster for me. <laughs> it was a little bit of an own goal. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, ha ha. Oh, oh no. Yikes. Um, but yeah, that's cool. 
Mm-hmm. Afro-Asiatic, 373 languages. That includes Semitic languages, so like Arabic and Hebrew. Chadic, spoken across the Sahel. Cushitic, in the Horn of Africa. And Berber, Tuareg and Tamazir. Uh, nuclear Trans-New Guinea. That sounds like a political, like an, some kind of act it that sounds, was passed. It sounds like something that people like are protesting. Yeah. Somehow. Uh, that's the Papuan languages spoken in New Guinea and surrounding islands. Mm. What's that? That's, that's me making that Austronesian. <laughs> oh. Because that's a super small place with 314, yeah, and it's got 314 languages. languages. In it. Did I say how many were for the Afro Asiatic? Because it's 373. Which is. Did I say that or did I just read it and think I it? I think you've read it and thought it, but actually, Kushit okay. it. So there's a. a theory that um <laughs> one of the earliest languages well that cushitic languages have been spoken in uh, the horn of africa and south of it like um, the longest the, the longest so since about the fifth yeah. millennium bce they think mm. that um agricultural types you know with their car hearts you know so <laughs> uh, i have a car heart jacket thank you very much I'm not Keeps saying anything again. That, no, it, but it's very good practical clothing. Uh, but yeah, mm. so the the Cushitic languages possibly have been spoken for 7,000 years where they are spoken today, which is mind-blowing in a different way. Um, yeah. But what's after nuclear trans-New Guinea? <laughs> uh, it, after that comes Pamanyungan, 248 languages. That is most of mainland Australia, except parts of Western Australia and Northern Territory. Then there's Otomanguean, 180 languages. And this family includes Mixtecan and Zapotecan, historically spoken throughout Central America and today mostly in the Mexican state of Oaxaca. And then there's Austroasiatic at 159 languages. That is spoken across mainland Southeast Asia and is sort of patchy in amongst other language families. Next, we've got Thai Kadai. Oh, I like that. That sounds like, I don't know. That sounds, that sounds cool. Uh, and there are, <laughs> nice. <laughs> it just sounds like a cool method of doing something. Oh yeah. Like a, like a time like, management method. Yeah. yeah. Like, have you tried the Thai Kadai method? Or, or, or like some kind of agile management be like we're gonna yeah. get a Thai mm-hmm. Kadai board and we're just really gonna like process this Woof. <laughs> okay uh anyway we're gonna process this in 94 languages ah. that are spoken in, in mainland Southeast Asia into southern China 60 percent of Thai Kadai language family speakers speak Thai yeah so that's the there we go the main one yeah which okay. like oh don't worry uh Thai is T-A-I and yes. Thai Kadai, so K A D. Yes, yeah. And so when I got to that part about like Thai, I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, <laughs> good point." Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Mm. <laughs> I got, mm-hmm. I got there. Okay. Now I'm there too. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> okay, so next is Dravidian with 81 languages, and that is spoken. Those families are from southern India, northern Sri Lanka, and the the languages include Tamil, Malayalam, and Telugu. Uh, then Arawakan, 78 languages spoken throughout most of South America up into the Caribbean, and we talked about them in our Taino episode. Uh, Mande. Includes 75 languages, and those are spoken in West Africa, classified by some as part of the Atlantic Congo family, but Glottolog maintains them as distinct. I believe them. And then lastly, we've got Tupian, 71 languages, uh, also spoken throughout South America, including Tupi and Guarani. And, um, and if you yeah. want to learn Guarani, you can on Duolingo. But you have but you'll get those you have to know Spanish. pushy little yes. It helps to know Spanish. No, no, like you, um, it's in Spanish. The Duolingo is? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So, Plus you'll get those pushy little reminders. Like you haven't, you haven't learned any Guarani today. Would you like to? But it'll we ask, miss you. But it'll ask you in Spanish. Yeah. But I, yeah, I don't <laughs> want to embarrass myself by trying to construct that sentence in Spanish. <laughs> no puedo. Uh, that's what the little Alice said um, me. <laughs> No se puede. 
Um, Okay, so those are just the largest language families. And there are many, many, many more out there, just a dizzying amount. However, one that might be of particular interest to our listeners, since you happen to be listening to one right now, hello, is the Indo-European language family. So after this next ad break, we'll talk about the family's patriarch, Proto-Indo-European, or Pi. So get those Pi jokes out now. We'll be right back. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. Okay, we're back. Got anything? I'm still thinking about pie jokes. Yep. Keep, keep going. Okay. So Anna mentioned earlier that according to Glottolog, there are 588 Indo-European languages. We'll include a map of descendants of Proto-European, Proto-Indo-European in the show notes. But right now, let's talk about the original, the OG. The original flavor of pie. Thank you. Great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pie. Um, there's no direct evidence for Proto-Indo-European since it was spoken possibly up to a millennium before and certainly very far away from where writing was even invented. Um, so it's only understood through comparative research. Linguists have identified more than 1,500 pie roots, which reminds me, um, in my field work mm-hmm. one time, the the director's children were there and uh, they were quite young. And we got in something of an argument, but more of a game me and two of his children to see who could name the most types of pie. (laughs) Um, And the five, the five-year-old definitely won, but he was kind of cheating because he'd be like vomit pie, magma pie. (laughs) like like naming substances. And I was just like, fine, (laughs) you win this game. But you ever heard of boysenberry kid? And he's like, lemon chess. And I'm like, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you should have been like child pie. Oh God! <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's how Amber was fired from that day. <laughs> yeah. So linguists have identified more than fifteen hundred uh, pie roots, um, and while that sounds like they might just be making it up, um, right? And so remember also um, when I've talked about this before. There's when you have the little asterisk next to. A root, right. so that that indicates that it's uh, reconstructed. Um, mm-hmm. So might not actually be that, but thought to be that. Well, according to um, David Anthony's "The Horse, the Wheel, and Language," um, excavations. See what he did there. Yeah. Right. Um, excavations of inscriptions in Hittite, Mycenaean Greek, and Archaic German all show, like when they were excavated and then read, they showed never before seen words that exhibit those roots predicted by the linguists. Hey, so it was linguists. a cool way of like testing their That's methods. Cool. Yeah. 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 Um, so ground truthing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Literally. Yeah. Um, Indo-European is thought to have its Orheimat, so its homeland, like where it was originally spoken. Thank you. I was going to be like, I know that's German. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. So the Orheimat. Orheimat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to the so it's to the north of and between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. So mm-hmm. the steppes. Um, a theory which is supported by linguistic evidence, but also genetic and archaeological evidence, including several complexes. So remember, a complex is a set of archaeological materials, such as a ceramic tradition or a specific set of tools that yeah, you can... a set of stuff. Yeah, that you can use to identify the relationship between whoever put it there and then this wider... Yeah, this, this 
wider group of, of people. Um, mm-hmm. So these complexes dating to between 3500 and 4500 BCE. By 3500 BCE, Indo-Europeans had spread far and wide out of their homeland. And over time and distance, the language split off into dialects, just like species. Um, yeah. So the first dialect thought <laughs> to split off from Indo-European from Pi was Anatolian, which those uh-huh. languages include Hittite. So it turns out Kikuli's horse texts were written in an Indo-European language. How about that? Yeah, right? Those are the the lemurs of of language. Lemurs were the, oh, the first yeah, primate yeah. type I'm, to split off. I'm following. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that was a, a little, metaphor. Well, so, yeah. Simile? But, not, but do not think that Lemurian no, is an Indo-European no, language not. because let's Lemurian ain't real. Nope. So how did they get all over the place? And how do we know this? Well, from research like this, which was published in Nature in 2015, and from which I will read the abstract. We generated, which they really jump in with this abstract. I love it. We generated genome-wide data from 69 Europeans who lived between 8,000 and 3,000 years ago by enriching ancient DNA libraries for a target set of almost 400,000 polymorphisms. Enrichment of these positions decreases the sequencing required for genome-wide ancient DNA analysis by a medium of about 250-fold, allowing us to study an order of magnitude more individuals than previous studies and to obtain new insights about the past. So what? I know, right? <laughs> like I know this is a nature paper, so they have to be often nature papers are very short. Like you get like five pages and that's it. So you have to be very concise and just include all the I do feel like they left words out though. Um I yeah, I feel like I'm missing a bunch. So is that syntax or semantics? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so they go on to say, and this is where it gets useful. <laughs> Okay, good. Uh, We show that the populations of Western and Far Eastern Europe followed opposite trajectories between 8,000 and 5,000 years ago. Sound familiar? At the beginning of the Neolithic period in Europe, which was circa 8,000 to 7,000 years ago, closely related groups of early farmers appeared in what is what is today uh, Germany, Hungary, and Spain. Uh, different from indigenous hunter-gatherers, whereas Russia was inhabited by a distinctive population of hunter-gatherers with a high affinity to a 24,000-year-old Siberian. By 6,000 to 5,000 years ago, farmers throughout much of Europe had more hunter-gatherer ancestry than their predecessors. But in Russia, the Yamnaya steppe herders of this time were descended not only from from the preceding Eastern European hunter-gatherers, but also from a population of Near Eastern ancestry. Western and Eastern Europe came into contact circa 4,500 years ago, as the late Neolithic corded ware people from Germany traced roughly 75% of their ancestry to the Yamnaya, documenting a massive migration into the heartland of Europe from its eastern periphery. Interesting. This steppe ancestry persisted in all sampled Central Europeans until at least 3,000 years ago and is ubiquitous in present-day Europeans. These results provide support for a steppe origin of at least some of the Indo-European languages of Europe. Mm -hmm. So this supports what's called the Kurgan hypothesis. Um, And it gets its name from the word Kurgan, which is Russian for a burial mound or a tumulus. Remember in the Bulgaria mm-hmm. episode, I asked you if they were yeah. called that? Yeah. Uh, because that's... I don't think they are. Yeah. But that's that's what those are called because this popular... This, so Yamnaya and similar um, archaeological complexes have... They, they did that they, thing. They did that. They, and they made burial And so mounds. you can see the yeah. spread of it. Um, mm-hmm. And so a fun callback, the Kurgan hypothesis was first proposed in 1956 by Maria Gambutash. Um, I remember her. Who, yeah, whom listeners may remember as the target of that very mean article in <laughs> Antiquity written by Lynn Meskel regarding lady statues. Yeah, um, so it's in our, our lady statues and, and prehistoric matriarchy. Yeah, yeah. That, that episode. Um, so later in life, um, Gimbutash emphasized the parts of the theory that suggested an authoritarian militant patriarchal take, takeover of the areas into which Indo-Europeans spread because they overthrew through the matriarchy and it was very violent and they had their corded grayware and et cetera, et cetera. That's so it sort yeah. of changed in terms of her own 
perspectives on things. But yeah. at the root of it was this idea of the Indo-European migration. Mm-hmm. Now, if you'd like to hear some Proto-Indo-European, um, linguist Andrew Bird, who is not my beloved musician, Andrew Bird. This I is, like Andrew Bird, too, this the is, musician. This is Andrew Bird. There's a Y in it. B-Y-R-E. Yeah, yeah. Not beard. Um, so <laughs> linguist Andrew Bird has you covered. Um, in an online feature for Archaeology Magazine, Bird recited two fables in Reconstructed Pie. Um, these are two. There are two stories... <laughs> shared on there which like i'm going to link to in the show notes but let's focus on the second one it's based on a story from the rig veda which was written in sanskrit and this one is about a king that prays to the god varuna for the son for a son um Mm. and i included a link so you can listen to it for the exercise it's like 40 seconds long um okay but um from archaeology i'm going to give you that story in english and then we're going to have you listen. We're going to have y'all listen to it. And then we're going to see what you think. <clears throat> Once there was a king. He was childless. The king wanted a son. He asked his priest, May a son be born to me? The priest said to the king, Pray to the god Weronos. The king approached the god Weronos to pray now to the god. Hear me, Father Weron- no, Hear me, Father Weronus. The god Weronus came down from heaven. What do you want? <laughs> I want a son. Very, very obliging. Yeah. <laughs> Let this be so, said the bright god Weronus. The king's lady bore a son. Mm. So now let's listen. Rakes hest, so mputlos. Rakes such no monchto. Tosio geutrum prekst. Such nus moi gunchatod. Geltor tom regum weoked. Hyagaswo de wom wedunum. Upo rakes de wom wedunum sesole. Nu de wom hyagetod. Clud hi moi pter wedune. De was wedunos di wes cum taguacht. Quid wehsi. Such num wehmi. Tod hestu. Weoked leucos de was wedunos. Nu rex potniach. Such num gegonhe. So, um, did you recognize any of the words? If you know other languages, did you hear words or features of words that you recognized? So you got things like rex, which hey, rex, I know that one. Rex is is king, king. in Greek. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got um, there was est that was part of the word for to be to to be um, is rida in fossa est. If you ever. Used Eke Romani yes. like I did to learn Latin. Um, there was there you could hear almost the word priest where it says prext. Um, huh. And then um, I that one. there's a past tense verb that has ge on the beginning. Oh, that's that's German. Is, yeah, German. Which is um, how you form the past tense in part of how you form the past tense in German. Uh, but yeah, super cool, huh? Very very cool, man. Language. Right? Uh, okay. But not every language has a family. <laughs> this summer from Disney. Oh, no. uh, <laughs> those languages without families are what's called language isolates. Now, before you get bummed out, like I just did, thinking they're lonely, may we remind you that according to linguist Lyle Campbell, language isolates constitute 37% of all language families. So that means that a third of all language families only have one member. I mean, honestly, this is ridiculous. Like, it is, well, it's, it's like, like mind blowing. <laughs> it's kind of like um, if you think about our genus, right? Homo, mm-hmm. Homo sapiens. We are currently the only living species within that genus, but that doesn't mean that there weren't once other members of the genus Homo bopping around the world. Just, well, sometimes, just were the ones sometimes that are left. it does mean that. But I'm just thinking about how um, the language, so language isolates. So one member, single person households of languages are <laughs> more than a third of all. Yeah. Fam- like, so you've got, you've got one that's what got like put on close taxes? to 1500 languages in it. And, and that is d- not, it's less than. 37% right. of all languages. Ever. Uh, yeah. 
It's wild. Yeah, right? So, but, mm-hmm. so you may be like, where are they all? Well, they're all over the world. Um, you've probably heard of a lot of them. You've, you've, well, not a lot of them. Goodness. They are Some of them. 37% Many. of all language. So, yeah. Okay, maybe, you've probably heard of at least one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, but... There are, um, understandably, a lot of these are indigenous languages, and so mm-hmm. they're all over the world. Uh, there are absolutely oodles in North and South America, and there also are included in language isolates, according to uh, Lyle Campbell, who's a very eminent linguist, um, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them, there <laughs> I've heard. are also many um, uncharacterized languages. So it could be that uncharacterized languages are related to other languages, or maybe they're related to some of the language isolates. But those uncharacterized languages are that way because they are, uh, perhaps there are too few speakers or they are extinct, as is the case mm-hmm. with many indigenous languages, um, tragically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Or they are just from uncontacted communities. So you have some of those in South and Central America. Um, you have yeah. some of those in places like the Andaman Islands. We do not know what um, South Sentinelese or Andamanese sounds like because um, this is the set of islands where they the that missionary went. He's like, I'm going to yeah, go those, tell them about the people, Lord, and they like they full they full on yeah like and but you know he was warned not to go. He, no, yeah, absolutely he, he because knew. they have made it like this this community in the Andaman Islands has made it abundantly clear that they are not interested in being contacted. Like yep. they've got theirs, they're fine. They really don't want anything anybody's got to offer. And it was just a um, perhaps understandable deployment of the castle doctrine of just mm. like, mm-hmm. do not come into our house. So we don't know what their language sounds like. But um, that's okay. One of the more famous examples of a language isolate for language isolate's sake is Basque which is spoken in the Iberian Peninsula. Um, Mm -hmm. And that is a relic language, relict language, not a, it's not like a dead saint's hand or something. It's not a golden idol. (laughs) Um, That's a relict language from the Indo-European migration, invasion, expansion. Yeah. Yeah. So expansion is usually the polite word for that. Yeah. And so it's, it's a language that, kept being spoken even after Indo-European languages moved in and became the more um, where it became useful to use them. And then eventually the other languages just died out, but Basque remains. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you think that um, language isolates are only spoken by a few people or small communities or in one, one village somewhere in the distance, um, perhaps you should, Think about Korean, because Korean is a language isolate. Well, yeah, which has a lot of people speak millions that. of speakers. So Korean has yeah. has um, and the it is depending on who you ask, Korean may actually be a language family of um, Koreanic, which includes the Jeju dialect, because mm-hmm. the dialect in Jeju is like a little bit different from Standard Korean is my understanding. So either it's completely a language isolate or it's its own little family with one little baby language. So isolate doesn't necessarily mean sort of unpopular. Yeah. Or even isolated. It just means that it doesn't doesn't match. It doesn't have a basis. Current branches. A shared basis. Yeah. 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 Mm Mm-hmm. And so over on Deep Cuts, which is one of the monthly episodes that we put out for our Patreon uh, supporters, we're going to feature some ancient language isolates and the wacky theories that have emerged about them over the years. Ancient language isolates include Indus Valley script, if those symbols are even writing at all, Etruscan, which is a language spoken in pre-Roman Italy, which might not be an isolate, Elamite, spoken and written in what is today southern Iran in the first millennium BCE, and the mother of all language isolates, Sumerian. Which that's cool that Sumerian is a language isolate. And the only reason why we mm-hmm. have it is because they invented writing. Um, but, Good job. But 
We've talked your ears off enough for one week. So let's leave you with a book club recommendation. I mentioned it earlier. This week, I suggest The Horse, The Wheel, and Language, How Bronze Age Writers from the Eurasian Steppes Shaped the Modern World by David W. Anthony. Until then, though, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or the podcaster. Oh, no. No, we're the podcaster of your choice. You can get those on the podcatcher of your choice. Um, (laughs) And then also our earliest episodes, like the throwback mentioned in our interview with Damian Huffer, um, those are available over on SoundCloud. So you can still find Mm -hmm. our our oldest episodes. You can find our our oldest, baddest episodes. Now, like those are (laughs) just the first three where we sound like we're shouting down a hallway. Yeah, you can definitely hear the distance between us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, those are on SoundCloud. And they're also on our website, which is thedirtpod.com. Yeah. And you can also find us on social media, where we post news stories, goofy jokes, and the occasional pithy comment. On Facebook, we are at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And as Anna said, you can go over to our website, thedirtpod.com, to see all of that, see all our old episodes, all our good episodes. All our old and good episodes. Um, they're all good. They're, they're all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other, the earliest ones just have a rustic charm. Mm, something like that. And a stick to that brought us to where we mm. are today. Uh, to mm. 81! 81! That's a lot. That's all, that's, yeah. Um, and you can buy some merch. Get some merch. Um, or you can sponsor an episode all your very own. That you then share with... A few hundred listeners. Hundred? What that. are you talking about? A few thousand listeners. Yeah. We yeah. we have thousands of listeners. That's, that's crazy. And we love you all. And if you want to support us on a recurring basis, you can do so at a number of attractively priced tiers at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. We love you. We love you. Sorry about all those linguistics. <laughs> Maybe people like them. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah. Okay. The dirt podcast at gmail.com. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Farewell. Goodbye. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.